You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. August 1931, If the Sun Died, by R.F. Startzel, Part 2. The Techni in charge had not yet returned, but Mitchell consulted the distribution plan and soon located the duck that led to Lane Mullen's warren. In a few minutes he was running, helped along by a strong current of fresh air. The map had shown the warren to be about a mile away. For the benefit of the Technies who had to work there, the duct was plainly marked, and the lighting by infrequent emanation bulbs was adequate, though dim. Mitchell had made no plans for a course of action after arriving at his destination. He felt reasonably sure that if he could get into the warren, he would have a good chance to escape with Nita. In the confusion, he could hide her nearby and perhaps affect the release of the senator also. He had no doubt about his fate if he were caught. Lane's pose of good sportsmanship having failed to impress Nita, he had adopted simple, brutal coercion. Mitchell's fate, if caught interfering, would be summary execution. Mitchell found the grating which he sought. It bore the key number of Lane's establishment. The key which would unlock it was, of course, in the hands of the police. But the bars were badly corroded, and Mitchell managed to bend them enough to permit the passage of his body. He found himself in a small chamber, from which ducts led to all parts of the warren. These ducts were too small to permit passage of his body. However, it would be necessary to come into the open. A small metal door promised egress. Mitchell climbed out and faced a surprised cook in the kitchen, engaged in flavoring synthetic food drinks. Mitchell said explanatorily, Inspection, air service. The cook did not know the regulations about keeping the air tunnels locked. Moreover, he, like all the other servants of the mighty, worked unwillingly, being conscripted. He only grunted. Mitchell made a pretense of testing the air currents. Presently he stepped into one of the communicating corridors. The warren was planned something like a house of the surface age, with luxuriously furnished rooms, baths, dining halls, and all of the appurtenances of wealth. Arriving at a rotunda, in the center of which was a glowing fountain, Michel encountered a guard. Boldly he asked him, Where is Molon? I wish to see him. The guard looked surprised. About Nita Main, sir. I would hardly dare. Michel looked at the man sharply, but there was no hint of recognition in the stupid, phlegmatic face. What about Nita Main? It is about her I wish to speak. There was a slight stirring of interest in the soldier's face. He will be glad to see you, sir, if you bring news of her. Eh, uh, yes. Perhaps what I have to tell him will be of no interest to him. If you can tell him where she is, he will ask no more of you. She made good her escape, then? Slow suspicion was dawning at last. For one who brings news, you ask a lot of questions, the guard remarked heavily as his hand slipped to the needle-ray weapon at his side. Show your pass. Like a flash, Mitchell was upon him, his hand at the thick throat, the other grasping the wrist. Although the soldier, like the majority of the populace, lacked the intense vitality of the technies, he had stubborn strength, and he fought effectively in the drilled, automatic way of his kind. 
Mitchell was further handicapped by the necessity of maintaining silence. One shout and a dozen needle rays would no doubt perforate his body with holes and slash his flesh with smoldering cuts. Grunting and sweating, they fought all around the rose-colored curb of the fountain. At last, Mitchell succeeded in forcing his adversary over the low stone, and they went over together with a resounding splash. The straining body of the guard suddenly relaxed, and a spreading red cloud in the water disclosed that he had struck his head against the first of the terraces that rose in the fountain's mist-shrouded center. Up one of the corridors, a door opened, and an angry voice shouted, Gurkha, Gurkha, I'll have you in bracelets. Captain of the guard, sir. From another of the corridors came a sound of running feet. A command rang out. On the double. An officer, followed by four soldiers, dashed around the corner and flashed by the fountain. Peering over the curb, Mitchell saw them, some hundred yards away, come to a halt before an open door. With a thrill of exultation, Mitchell recognized the tall figure of Lane Mullen, looking like a slightly damaged satyr of the better class, for his head was bandaged, and he was in bad humor. Captain, he stormed, I want you to put that damned louse in solitary confinement for a year, here? Yes, sir. Like a megaphone, the long corridor carried the low, respectful words to Mitchell's ears. Lane continued to storm. And if you put another damned murk-like crazy blunker on guard in this place, I'll have your commission, here? Yes, sir. A quick decision was necessary, and Mitchell acted without hesitation. The guard had rolled over on his back so that his face was out of the water, and he was breathing with quick, painful gasps. Mitchell dragged him up under the concealing shelter of the fountain spray, and there changed clothes with him. In the meantime, the flowing water washed away the red stain of blood. When the captain returned with his guard, Mitchell was lying realistically in the pool, apparently deep in a drugged sleep. The little kepi tilted rakishly over his face. He was roughly seized and dragged out of the water to the accompaniment of much cursing. A fist crashed into his face. Suddenly the soldiers felt the supine figure under their hands explode into energy. Elbows and fists seemed to fly from all directions at once. A needle ray appeared, and before they could draw their own weapons, they were howling with pain as searing welts drew over their bodies. With one accord, they plunged into the pool. Only the officer remained, and he fell to the mosaic floor, his weapon half raised, the small black hole in his chest giving off a burnt odor. Mitchell appropriated the officer's brassard of rank and, menacing the cowed guards, forced them to herd into a nearby room, carrying the body of the officer with them. Mitchell locked the door and looked around. He saw no one observing him and could count on carrying a pretty good bluff in his uniform, which was rapidly shedding its water. With a firm step, Mitchell walked to Lane Mullen's door, threw it open, and entered. Lane sat up on his couch, his feet striking the floor with an angry thump. But when he recognized Mitchell, he paled slightly. Where is she? Mitchell demanded roughly. Before I burn you down. You said once, Lane began sneeringly, that you wanted to fight me. Now, if you'll just put down that... Not now, Mitchell dissented with deadly coldness. Where is Nita? Speak fast. Lane did so. She isn't here. 
the little short crowned me with a chair and slipped out how did i when hurry up hardly an hour ago she walked down the corridor showed a thick-witted guard my own executive pass and got away but i got that guard never mind what you did to the guard suddenly the image of an officer strange to michel stood in the room and saluted smartly has captain egan mr lane mullins leave to stay he asked mullins started forward but before he could disclose his predicament michel had sided over to him and thrown one arm affectionately over his shoulder in his hand concealed by the rich folds of lane's robe michel held his needle ray and it was pressed firmly against lane's ribs mr mullen will be glad to hear you michel slid smoothly he fancied that the eyes of the officer's image dilated slightly but it lost none of its military rigor but some explanation of his presence there in his still damp uniform must be given egan so he growled in a voice that he tried to make a bit thick as if he had chewed too much murklight at ease captain at ease damn it man you don't have to be so damned military you're among friends and he tousled lane's dark hair affectionately captain egan looked his disgust sir he said to lane we captured nita main as she tried to board a public car near the executive mansion the black lens at the end of michel's needle ray pressed hard and lane said naturally you have her in custody sir we have and to michel's dismay nita defiant her lovely form half revealed by rents in her garments seemed to materialize beside the officer her wrathful eyes were fixed on lane and then she saw michel the techni put all his will into the pleading stare which he returned and she understood she gave no sign of recognition but favored both lane and michel equally with the chill of her disdain sir what are your orders lane glanced aside at michel acutely conscious of the lethal pressure in his ribs it's all right with me old fellow michel squawked good-humoredly this is your girl that got away from you let's both go over and bring her back lane nodded assent the soldier saluted and his vision and that of the girl disappeared and we're going to do just that michel added in an entirely changed voice get up you act right speak right do right and you may live to see another day so the two left the warren in apparent amity and walked the beautiful street with its richly formed brightly colored arches its seemingly illimitable vistas its luxuriant pampered decorative vegetation its blazing lights until at last they came to administration circle and entered the ponderous gates behind which lay the very heart of the government they were challenged at once although the officer of the guard knew lane usage required the showing of the daily pass many high officers of the government had in years past fallen from grace overnight this formality complied with lane and michel the latter with his ray needle ever ready sat down to wait in the guardroom and lane under michel's quiet prompting ordered that nita and her father be brought to him we shall bring the girl yes the astonished officer protested but not senator maine he is a prisoner of state perhaps you don't know captain michel suggested smoothly 
that it is not wise to disregard the orders of the provincial president's son it would cost me my commission perhaps my life the officer said neither would be worth much if you disobey michel countered a wire edge creeping into his voice the officer looked into lane's stormy face then with great reluctance retreated to carry out the order in about ten minutes he was back with four guards and his prisoners he explained that captain egan was detained on official duty you may go said lane prompted by a jab in the ribs a written receipt please sir for the senator glowering lane wrote out the desired document at last they were alone our program michel announced briskly is simple you will conduct us to one of the government cars and will ride with us to such places as we may direct and i shall release you when it pleases me if you then want to fight i will accommodate you i would be willing to fight you as head of the technies lane countered sullenly but i wouldn't be bothered with a rebel and a traitor you've overstepped yourself this time my fine bolthead and all i ask is a front seat at your execution they stepped into the brightly lighted hall and in that instant michel felt a searing heat on his shoulder without a moment's pause he hurled senator maine and the girl back into the room at the same moment he flung an arm around lane's neck and pulled him back into the doorway where he could use him as a shield while he cautiously peered out into the corridor his shoulder throbbed painfully but his movement had prevented the needle ray from penetrating deeply in any one place a short distance up the corridor was a wider space in the center of which stood a large bronze urn filled with exotic plants behind this urn were several soldiers and michel recognized the sharp-eyed captain egan so that officer had recognized the true state of affairs or had strong suspicions but in his haste and eagerness he had overlooked one important fact in the guardroom were riot rays heavy replicas of the ordinary hand weapons they had not been needed for many years but the technies had always kept them fully charged and in order nita michel called not removing his eye from the doorway yes she was standing beside him and michel thrilled to the admiration and positive affection in her intonation notice those short tubes mounted on light wheels over against the walls those are riot ray projectors wheel me over a couple nita did as directed michel stuck the stubby muzzle of one of the nearest weapons into the corridor pulled the lever and swung the ray in an arc toward the ambushed soldiers there was a sharp crackling noise and the heat chipped myriads of flakes off the stone walls leaving a gray path across the rich murals and the air was filled with flying particles the heat was terrific it beat back into the doorway Captain Egan gave a short, sharp order, and he and his men retreated before the bronze urn began to wilt and drip melted metal. He could not be accused of cowardice, for his hand weapons were puny compared to the riot rays. Quick, before he gets in touch with the outer guard, Michel urged his prisoner forward, Senator Maine following. The grave patriarch of rhetoric made a striking picture as he dragged the second riot ray along. The other one was abandoned, locked with full power on. It was converting that corridor into an inferno, and there would be no pursuit through that avenue. Michel pulled open the metal door suddenly. The two guards on duty were just coming in, their hand weapons ready. They never knew what struck them, for there was no time for compunction. A 
but even as their bodies sank to the paving there was the harsh clangor of alarm bells soldiers dashed from everywhere and came running their needle rays menacing in there michel shouted he pointed to the doors at the dead guards as they hesitated he added revolution they're storming the president's office hear the rays through the doors came a faint humming an acrid smell of heat of stone and metal fumes a corporal saluted michel recognized lane's haggard features and lane again felt that cogent persuader in his ribs that's right corporal he said bitterly is the guard room occupied sir not now you fool michel snapped at him this resolved the last of the corporal's misgivings giving an order he led his men in gasping now we'll run michel ordered giving lane a shove coming nita she was dragging her father along joyously they crossed the broad pedestrian walk and in the street found an official car nestling on one of the tracks even the riot ray will you old fellow michel requested jovially and lane did then the listless chauffeur turned a controller and the big car rose a few inches lightly as a feather and sped away swiftly through the maze of traffic some time later they were in a service lift not one of the great public lifts that carry their hundreds at a trip but one of the small lifts used mostly by the technies and known to few outside their ranks michel standing blissfully close to nita and her father enjoyed his moment of relaxation many things had been attended to lane had been released at last in one of the catacomb cemeteries it would take him at least two hours to find his way out they were discussing the riot ray which they had with them i hope we won't have to exhaust it in a fight before we get out senator maine said anxiously it would be a splendid weapon if we encounter a hostile environment outside the gate is guarded michel said practically but we expect to surprise them no use worrying the lift came to a stop at an airlock the great elevator shafts were closed by airlocks every two thousand feet the reason is obvious if the air of the great spheroid subterranean nation were allowed to freely obey the laws of gravity it would be oppressively dense in the lower levels and excessively rarefied in the upper ones while the airlocks were operating michel stepped to a telucid and gave the agreed-on signal in another half hour they were at thirty-seven x the great dusty and little-used storeroom was only poorly lighted it was dank and had an uncomfortable chill technies and their families were coming in from all sides and it was not long before some five hundred persons men women and children were assembled many of them were pale and frightened-looking for they were staking everything on an ideal a theory there would be no coming back the statute books of subterranea decreed only one penalty death for even the merest tampering with the frozen gate it was not like this that they had visioned the opening of the gate under properly controlled conditions it would have been possible to open the gate for preliminary explorations but not now they were outside the law nita standing beside michel shivered and pulled her overrobe closer around her there was sadness in her voice as she said these children they remind me of the thousands of children we must abandon with our people 
If I could, I'd steal a few to take with us. Mitchell grinned without mirth. And be damned as a kidnapper of a particularly horrible sort as long as Subterranea lasts? I know, I know, but what will happen to them all when the automatic machinery fails? They may learn to run it, if they have to. Or if we succeeded in establishing ourselves in the outer world, we can tunnel back to them around the gate in a year or so. Don't worry about them too much. We're taking the big risk, not they. Gobit Hanlon, accompanied by Floss Entine and Mila Main, approached. He was loaded down with a huge case of concentrated food. I've given orders to bring with us all the cold-resisting fabrics we could carry. Got them loaded down, eh? All here. Every last one. Let's go, then. Mitchell stepped to a small door that led into the main corridor close to the gate. This door had not been used by the technies when assembling. Through a tiny hole, the guard, four soldiers, could be seen about a blanket, tossing sixteen-sided dice. Mitchell opened the door, his needle-ray pointed. Don't move or you burn, he commanded harshly. The guards, taken completely by surprise, did not move. In a few moments they were bound, gagged, and dumped into a corner of 37X. Eager technies were swarming over the complicated mechanism that they had dared to touch before, only for inspection and maintenance. The frozen gate was like a huge stopper in a bottle, made of chromium steel. It was thirty feet in diameter and thirty feet thick from its well-insulated inside face to that enigmatical outside that had been a grisly mystery to the race for some five hundred centuries. There was a flash of sparks and the quiet hum of motors. With a shuddering groan, the great plug freed itself from the grip of millennia, turned a few inches in its hole. The supporting gimbals took the load now, and slowly the great mass moved inward, carried by an overhead traveling crane whose track was bolted to the rock roof. The rate of movement was slow, not much over three or four inches a minute. An excited murmur filled the cavern, almost hysterical joy. But Michel, watching that widening margin for the dreaded gush of liquid air, only trembled with relief. At least the calamity that had visited rash Atlantica would not be repeated here. A young techni, one of the heat distributors, climbed up the heavy bosses on the gateway's face. I'm going to be the first to see the sun, he shouted joyously. His challenging gaze roved over the waiting crowd, and suddenly his face turned ashen. For at the turn of the corridor, some hundred yards away, he had seen men, no mistaking those uniforms, they were soldiers, and Michel, following his gaze, saw a riot ray being wheeled into place. His own riot ray already commanded the corridor, but he dared not use it. The soldiers, under the partial protection of the turn, could incinerate the helpless technies with little danger to themselves. Wait, Michel shouted, running into the open. An officer came to meet him. He then recognized Captain Egan, whose exceptional shrewdness had almost undone him before. Egan could not see the slow movement of the gate, and Michel himself, weaponless, counted only on parlaying for time. They met midway between the two forces, and the small black lens of the captain's weapon pointed steadily at Michel's chest. Michel Ares, I arrest you. 
It seemed that the captain's fine gray eyes looked out of the lean face with real sympathy. It may be there will be executive clemency for these people of yours, but for you? Mischel, tense and deadly, saw the captain's vigilant attention leave his face for a second, saw his eyes widen in consternation. He could not know that Egan had seen a slender crescent of green light appear in the frozen gate, but he did not lose the opportunity. His fist crashed on the captain's jaw so that the soldierly figure reeled and the needle ray fell to the ground. Michel leapt after him, picked him up, held him. The riot ray was turned full on him, and a soldier's hand trembled on the lever, but it did not pull. "'You'll kill him!' Michel shouted." and then he ventured to turn his head to look at the gate. He saw the first of the fugitives struggle into the narrow crack. The gate seemed to have stuck, and there was barely room to pass. Egan, half-conscious, was trying to rain blows on Michel's back, compelling him to stop and pass the officer's hand through the belt of his tunic and to manacle him with a pair of bracelets which he found in his pocket. As he staggered toward the gate with his burden, he saw Gobit beside him, the stolen riot ray menacing the soldiers who would otherwise have rushed in. Suddenly, Egan struggled upright. Fire, he commanded, in stentorian tones. They'll kill you too, you fool, Michel exclaimed angrily. I'm a soldier, Egan answered with contempt. His legs barely supported his weight, and he was struggling to free his manacled hands. He threw himself into the narrow crevice of the gate to obstruct the stream of fugitives. He started to shout again, Fi crack! Again, Michel's fist caught him. He hooked the officer's elbow over two of the bosses so that he was supported in plain sight of his men and turned to urge haste. The last two stragglers were hurrying through, and with relief, Michel turned to follow but he set the closing mechanism in motion before he leaped for the narrow opening that was becoming still narrower, though very slowly. Now for that green crescent of light and hope. He felt a wave of heat. Glancing back, he saw the irresolute guards scattered by the enraged charge of a square, blocky man in civilian robe. The usually smiling provincial president, Senator Molon, Molon himself was fumbling with the lever of the riot ray. Egan had evidently reported where he was going before starting in pursuit of the technies. Again that withering flash of heat, and Michel saw Captain Egan, still semi-conscious, suddenly turn red-faced. Molon would burn him up without compunction in the hope of catching one of the fugitive technies. And now a figure in uniform leaped forward at Molon's angry gesture and bent purposefully to the sighting tube. The crescent was now so slender that Michel had to turn sideways to squeeze back into the corridor, and slowly, inexorably, it was growing smaller still. With desperate haste, the practiced uniformed man was adjusting his range. Captain Egan struggled when Michel seized him. I arrest! Michel thought for a sickening moment that he was caught in the closing gate. Then he was free in the cylindrical tunnel into which the plug was creeping. Luckily, Egan was slight. His body squeezed through with little more difficulty than Michel's own. Now the opening was too small for any man's body. 
A red glow illuminated that narrowing slit, an acrid wave of heat, and the smell of burnt metal came with the strong current of air that blew out of subterranea. Mitchell dragged his captive down the rocky tunnel, the floor of which dipped gently away from the gate, for drainage, no doubt. Around a bend, the source of the greenish light was apparent. The fugitives were in an ice cavern. The light seemed to emanate from roof and walls. The air was uncompromisingly chill, for the blast of warm air from subterranea had stopped. But the cold of the air was nothing to the icy chill that settled on the heart of Michel Ares and the hearts of Senator Maine and the other leaders of this desperate enterprise. So this, this was the outside, a cavern of ice, small, hemmed in, those ancient folk legends of a son. I arrest you, Michel Ares. Michel laughed shortly. What a single-minded fellow this Captain Egan was, still groggy, of course. Didn't know where they were. He left the soldier with a red, blistered face. Michel, Michel, a voice echoed shrilly from the ice walls. It was a high-pitched voice, and an excited one, a boy came flying out of a narrow crevice, his short robe flying, his cloth-wrapped legs twinkling. Michel, he shouted. I saw it. I saw the sun, the beautiful sun. Lucky it was that in the rush no one was hurt. The small cleft opened into a wide tunnel, a low-roofed cave through which milky-white water flowed. The cave opened upon a vista of blue sky and towering mountains, whose tops were burdened with snow, and upon whose side glaciers slid down and melted, and the milky-white stream brawled down into a green valley far, far below. On a mountain meadow not far from the glacier that still buried the frozen gate, they rested. And so came a new strain of humanity upon the surface of the earth a strain tempered and refined by the inexorable process of evolution and environment. Already animal life had reappeared, drastically changed and ruthlessly weeded out by the most severe ice age the world had ever known. And now man stood once more on a new threshold of time. Something of this may have passed through the minds of the refugees, luxuriating in the strong sunlight of this mountain meadow, and in active and alert brains the foundations of a new civilization were already being built. They were preparing to go into the valley below when there was a dull concussion. The glacier over the frozen gate rose slightly, then disappeared completely out of sight, leaving a yawning hole in the mountainside. Ice and rocks slid down, filling the hole. The refugees gazed at the scene in fear and wonder. They have blown up the gate, and the chambers leading to it. Senator Maine, now only Leo Maine, said slowly, There goes our last chance to save them. His tones were deeply sad. He could not look upon those people as an experiment that nature had abandoned although he knew that history is thronged with the shadows of vanished races culled by the process of natural selection. But youth looks only ahead. The majority of the rescued technies were young, and with eagerness and anticipation they followed Michel and Nita Ares down into the valley 
to build their first homes. End section 5